Hello everyone, this is Andrew with a quick explanation slash apology. The audio, my audio in particular, is pretty poor during the introductory segment of this episode. Uh, thankfully, this is not an issue during the interview. Uh, essentially, I was on the wrong microphone um, while we were recording the introduction, and I failed to notice it. For reasons that will become obvious, we didn't want to re-record the introduction. So I apologize to uh, everyone affected by this, to you, to Carlos, and to our guest, uh, that my sloppiness here interfered with what turns out to be a kind of special moment, but I hope that you will uh, forgive this and enjoy the episode. Danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 404 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. We will be joined shortly by Lara Eisenberg, who is uh, a Maryland area, not quite professional poker player, but extremely serious uh, poker player. It's becoming a larger and larger part of her profession, uh, most notably she was uh, she took second place in the uh, $1000 WPT prime event at uh, the win in December of 2022 and she also has a WSOP bracelet from the WSOP women's event in uh, October of 21 i've known lara informally for a while just because she's a, a maryland area poker player so i, I encountered her um i've been have been encountering her for many years and it was always apparent to me i would just, you know I, I initially when i saw her i had in my mind she was like a you know very recreational poker player like poker was obviously not not her profession but you know, she enjoyed playing and whatnot and i just felt like every single time that i played with her she was just like so much better than the last time i played with her where i was like i really need to move her out of this recreational player bucket in in my head because she's clearly a good deal better than that and uh, it's been a couple years since i've run into her now but she's she's obviously gotten even quite a bit better since then so uh you know among other things talk to her about uh, that that process of how she's managed to be an extremely successful but not fully professional poker player yeah i had a lot of experience with her in terms of seeing her grind as a student because i did a lot of coaching sessions with um various people like ryan laplante would do group coaching um i want to say Definitely Ryan. I, um, she, so I heard her talk about BBZ coaching with Ape Styles. And so that kind of inspired me to go check out their stuff. And now um, I do a lot of the group coachings with um, BBZ as well. Um, I don't know if she ever did Faraz's stuff or um, GTO Wizard, but, you know, there's a group of people that, you know, I'm all over the place learning from various different sources. And when I see like the same people in these different little groups, like I'm not surprised at all when I see that that work that their hard work in terms of studying and paying off for them on the film. Yeah, I think it was, I thought it was very interesting to see how you and I knew her from different, you know, where I, I knew her from, from running into her. And I was like, what is she doing to get so much better? And you actually had the answer to that question because you were running into her at these uh, at these study sessions. And I don't know, you have not actually played with her, though, right? Um, 
not in person. Obviously, I don't play much live, and I don't know if she plays much on Ignition. But that's put would have been the only place we run into each other. Maybe like an online WSOP bracelet event or something. But as far as I know, I haven't played with her. Yeah, I just thought it was funny that like we 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 had experienced her in, in these like there like had had these different sorts of interactions. But I I like knew her as an opponent. You knew her as sort of like a fellow student, and your um the the venue through which you knew her was the answer to the, this question that I had about her this this curiosity that I had uh, about her. Yeah, definitely. Because like, she's definitely um, like in my mind, I was thinking like, she always seemed like a steady, uh, a steady player to me. Like, like the, the thing that came to mind to me was like, she seems like she has a steady hand and she doesn't crack on crack under pressure, which is pretty funny when you think about her, her actual profession uh, being in the medical field. She actually does have a literal steady hand. Yeah, and well, and also her her previous hobby of or extremely serious hobby of uh, skydiving. She was, she was a, a, I, mean, I don't know that it was quite a profession, but I mean she was a, a very serious uh, skydiver for a long competitive skydiver for a long time as well. And uh, we do talk to her about that as well. Yes. Uh, we also have an update, uh, and I will encourage if folks have not yet to episode four hundred and one of the podcast. Uh, that is a fantastic interview with a woman named Gloria Jackson and uh, we have an update concerning Gloria. Yeah. So the one thing that um, we don't get as much on the show now that I'm a host and I'm on every time is these like Carlos slice updates. Like where in the world is Carlos this, this time it's usually, I would do an episode every like, you know, 10 to 15 episodes or so. And, get into all kinds of crazy shit in between time and come back and update everybody on it. So we don't get those as much anymore now that I'm the host, but we do have a Carlos update and a Gloria update right now because Carlos and Gloria are together in a relationship now. So um, I want to uh, reintroduce the um, the um, podcast um, community to my now lady, Gloria Jackson. Say hello, Gloria. Hello, poker community. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I confirmed that everything he said is true. <laughs> what, what a wild thing for him to lie about with you sitting right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she didn't know I was going to say that. I just put her on the spot. She stopped coming for a coaching session and turns out uh, proposed it on the podcast. <laughs> well, it's good to hear your voice on the show again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> she's so embarrassed right now. Um, she, she's got this great smile. And like when she gets shy, it's like even better. So, yeah, uh, we're both super happy. Um, we um, we definitely um, I reached out to her to get her on the episode um, in the beginning of March and we've been talking a lot since then and yeah just saw how much we had in common and just kind of like you know develop you know this uh friendship that quickly grew into more and and now we're here so like yeah we are we are together we made a decision to make that she made a decision to make that public last night and I could not <laughs> wait for her to make that decision so now that it's made I figured that we wanted to Find a way to to get it out to the podcast listeners because they like I said they like the the updates of my my story and um, 
Uh, we want to thank Laura for allowing us a little bit of space on our episodes. <laughs> so we don't have to wait and um, do it when we do our, we're going to do a joint episode at some point. And, but that might be a month from now. And yeah, I wanted to get this out as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think that's the right call. Um, and I, I appreciate Gloria indulging us on this. Uh, I think people are going to be very eager, judging from the NRC, uh, reaction on, on Twitter. Uh, this is going to be exciting news for, for the person who once uh, proudly declared himself homeless jobless and alone on the very show. Yeah, yeah. My goal today is to have um, Glory and I, to, I want to play the episode for her to just see how much she's changed me in such a short amount of time. And um, yeah, that's going to be fun. We've been doing a lot of that kind of stuff lately, just like going back and seeing how old Carlos is so much different from new Carlos. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that the um, contacting her initially as a potential podcast guest is what set this whole thing in, in motion. That's a wild story. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. You can chime in on something if you want to. She's so shy right now. Yeah, I know. This is different from being a guest on the show. I feel, uh, you know, I'm kind of put in the spotlight right now, so <laughs> I'm kind of nervous. But I would have never in a million years thought that, first of all, I would ever be on the phone talking to you, Andrew, or over Skype, whatever, Zoom. Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I definitely wouldn't have thought that I would have met Carlos in such a way of meeting myself because that's what it felt like after I did the podcast I listened to I listened to it and I was just so amazed by how much Carlos and I had in common and how we were living two different lives but we were pretty much like the same person you know so it was all a blessing and I felt like I was doing the podcast with you guys to uplift other women because that's been my goal from the beginning but i was actually doing it to like meet the 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 man who inspired me in poker which was you and it's pretty much was like something was saying to me at that moment keep going you know um by by meeting you and talking to you because I'm getting a little emotional. <laughs> okay. Well, well, let me, let me just yeah, let's stop. I, it. No, I do. I do. <laughs> to gather yourself, but just to clarify, people, she's not talking about me right now. She's talking about Andrew. Uh, when she was first getting started with poker, she was a um, she was a um, uh, you know studied through um, TPE. So she would always like, you know, watch the Andrew Brokos or as she says, Andrew Brukos videos uh, to get better at poker. And so, you know, I'm a little bit, you know, not too happy about her getting emotional about you right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all in one. It, It was it's through Andrew. I fell in love with learning the game and and it was through Andrew you know, through thinking pot poker that I met you. So it all came back full circle and I'm just grateful. So that's where the emotions come from. So uh, thank I'm, you. I'm flattered for my role. Thank you. <laughs> am, am I correct also, Gloria, that you won the first poker tournament that you played after you all uh, got together? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> the first two. The first two. Wow. <laughs> yeah yeah 
That's correct. Uh, the ladies tournament at the win, and uh, I chopped that and took second place in the chop, and then a third or something like that. And then I went to Resort World and I played their deli, and I won that one. So yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's a hell of a poker caddy. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. And we we always used to talk about the podcast run good, but you know when you actually fall in love with a host, is I guess it's even better. You win two tournaments instead of one. So. Right. <laughs> well, thank you, Gloria, for indulging us here. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely wanted to let people hear her voice again um, because I do know, like I look at the numbers on this on on Twitter. Man, her episode was so popular. Yeah. Um, I will say this, though. I always do this. I apologize, but not really. Um, feels like the same thing is happening with Laurie. When when we did the episode with Laurie, it was like crickets for a while, and I was not expecting crickets from the other poker media after that episode, and I wasn't expecting it here. So, like, you know, I kind of expected more people to reach out to Gloria for interviews after that episode, given how powerful her story is. But um, that'll happen in due time. Actually, it works out well for us this time because it gives me more time to get to know her. Like, we've just spent <laughs> a lot of time together. But uh, once we get our foundation set, yeah, on Poker Media, you clearly, if you heard this episode from her, you know this is a hell of a person and a hell of a player. And more needs to be um, um, spoken about her out there in the poker community. So, um, yeah, do your thing. And shout out and shout out to Laura once again. Like I said, I want to do this on Laura's um, intro of, of all the episodes that we have in the tank because, um, like, my mission right now is like highlighting these women in poker. And so, um, yeah, this is this is just two 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 great female poker players here that we can um, highlight, and um, maybe they'll get to meet one day. I think they will really get along. They 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 seem like similar people. Uh, anything else, or should we bring in Lara? Yeah, we can go ahead and bring in Lara now. Yeah, right, this so is I'll it. just remind people one more time if they want to hear uh, Gloria's first appearance on the show, uh, and hopefully not her last. That'll be uh, episode four hundred and one. Uh, fantastic interview, in my opinion. Uh, we had some of it, we, so we we do this monthly call with our um, the, the, the highest tier people on our Patreon, uh, Thinking Poker. No, Patreon.com slash Thinking Poker Daily. Uh, for those of you who want to get daily strategy segments from us. Uh, but the, the highest tier there includes a, a monthly call with us where we often answer strategy questions, but also sometimes talk to people about the show and, and what they would like to hear more of and that kind of thing. And um, there was a, a pretty strong consensus that, you know, Gloria was a, a contender for best episode ever. So definitely, folks, if, if you have not heard episode four, and I'm sorry, Gloria, I'm sure it's ours right now. But uh, I just want to encourage everyone if they have not listened to episode 401 yet uh they really really should go and do that but i can't imagine too many people have heard this and are still not inspired to go yeah like i will say two names that came to mind right away were um both lee jones and tommy angelo from what they've heard they've instantly became big gloria jackson fans and so I would say pretty much everybody in that call who had heard the episode felt the same way. And I felt a little weird about it because I've been on 30 episodes and I've been putting in the work and she just comes <laughs> out of nowhere. And all of a sudden her episode is like the best episode ever. But, you know, uh, I'm OK with that um, because I'm a little biased at this point. I also want to say I, I have the weird anxiety that I said Gloria Johnson at some point, And if I did, I found it. 
<laughs> I didn't hear it, but um, I'm smiling too hard to hear anything right now. <laughs> well, congratulations to you both. Thank you for uh, sharing your story with us. Well, nice to meet you virtually, Carlos. You too, Laura. You too. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you guys had not met before. You were, you were just, you were speaking as though you were actually, old friends. I don't think that we've actually met um, in person, maybe at the series. Uh, no, we haven't. encountered each but, other, but I don't think so. Yeah. Mostly just, you know, attending the same like online coaching study groups. Um, mm -hmm. So like, I think you did some of um, Ryan's and then also BBZ. I recently got into yep. them. So. Yeah, so that's mostly how mo mo most people I know in poker I just have met online and not in person. Are you doing BBZ seminars now? Yeah, I just started with those like a couple months ago. Oh, great! Well, yeah, I think yeah, you you I got into it because of your recommendation. So thank you. Mm. Yeah, it's really it's really good stuff. Um, it's changed a little bit because they've just added new coaches, and so we're getting a little bit. The only main thing I'm sad about is we're getting a little less Yargo, but. Uh, it, it can be a pretty big dose of ICM getting a lot of Yargo days. So, right. <laughs> so Lara, the way this works, we'll, we'll record some kind of introduction for you off the air. Um, I'm kind yeah. of interested in what you guys have already started talking about. So with your permission, let's just use, use what you've already been saying and, and go from there. Yeah, sure. Whatever. All right. Um, so I, I thought BBZ was like a staking thing where you had to be getting staked by them to, uh, and then you like coaching was, was part of that package. Are these seminars like a thing that you can sign up for even without being part of their staking uh, arrangement? Yep. Yeah. So they have, they do have BBZ staking um, and they have different levels of that. Um, and then they have, so they have certain coaches that are pegged to, to, to doing more one-on-one -on -one coaching, I think with the, you know, stakeys. Um, but, and the, but those same people are also in the seminar. So the seminars are only $60 a month. Um, and there's, I think we're up to like, see, two Monday, two Tuesday, two Wednesday. So that's six, seven, eight, nine, nine a week. Wow. Um, and ape styles go for usually two hours at least. Um, and so, because I started out, um, well, I didn't start out, but I had previously been with ape styles with um, what we called Elevate, which was part of um, uh, you know, this other site, but we only had a small group of people. And when that kind of wound down, then we all migrated over and followed Ape Styles over to BBZ. Um, so he does Wednesday seminars and stuff, but it's, it's just really a great setup, you know, because you just have all these live seminars. So you can ask questions and it's very interactive. Um, so it's a much more of a Socratic, you know, Socratic kind of learning um, setup and, you know, Jordan is actually quite adamant about it in a good way that he, he really wants people to submit. It can be directly to him, but to submit answers to the questions that he's asking. And by, you know, when you commit to something and to say, you know, like, Oh, I'm always folding here or whatever. And mm -hmm. you find out how wrong you are. You know, you just remember <laughs> it so much more. I mean, you were, you know, into teaching. So I'm sure both of you know, but I really yeah, like I, that. I, I describe my own coaching the same way, but it, it always feels a little pretentious to be like, oh, I use the Socratic method when I'm teaching. I mean, <laughs> but I, I mean, it's a good way to describe it. And I, I think everything you said is true and important. Well, and that, that kind of gets to something that I've been 
curious about, which is essentially just like, what's the, um, not really the Laura Eisenberg origin story, but the, uh, the, the rise to power, you know, I, I just <laughs> always saw you around and I felt like every time I saw you and every time I played with you, you were so much better than the last time I played with you. And I was like, what is she doing to like get so much better? So, so quickly and, and aggressively. And maybe this is part of the answer to that question. Well, I've been playing actually quite a long time now. Um, so I started back in the moneymaker days and only because I had been a gamer, um, you know, like a PC gamer back when people were doing PC games. I don't know if anybody even does now, but, um, you know, so I had like the whole PC game set up and stuff like that and was watching just like commercials after the news one night after eating dinner. And it was some like poker stars commercial or something else. And I was like, what the heck is this? Are there people, are people allowed to gamble on the internet for money actually? <laughs> And I, I couldn't believe it. And I was just like, why am I playing games for free? And if I could be learning a game where you can actually make money, I didn't know how to play poker at all. I mean, I literally didn't know like what beats what, or, you know, how do you play or what are the games? Um, but I just like, well, there have to be books. I'm sure there's books. And it was like, it was all just like Malmuth and Sklansky and you know, super system. And what else? Oh, it was uh, Harrington. Like those were the main things. So I just bought them, read those. Um, and then started playing on like, party poker and paradise i think and then poker stars and full tilt and whatever and um playing a bunch of like limit cash and went up to atlantic city and started doing you know all that and then eventually ended up in tournaments and started doing uh i did a couple of classes uh with wpt boot camp um, and just you know like my biggest fault is i have like poker education fomo you know so i just like buy everything like whatever it is, like a new course comes out, I just buy it and like listen to everything. And if a new book comes out, I buy it and I read it. Um, and so it's just kind of like learning by drinking from the fire hose. And, uh, but I think my biggest leap forward really came from working with Ape Styles, um, honestly, because um, when we had this little subgroup, of, it was Rob Tinian um, and his, um, he had had his site and then he wanted to have sort of this like more involved, higher level coaching that was part of his site. And he was said, you know, it's going to be, you won't believe who the coach is going to be. And it's going to, and I was like, Oh, what's ape styles. And it was going to be $297 a month, which was a lot then compared to most sites. But I was like, well, that sounds amazing. So I was like, you get to lock it in if you do it right away. So I immediately signed up and we ended up with this really small group of like 15 of us basically that went on for a couple of years, starting in like 2017, I think. Um, and watching him, you know, he was even like live streaming with no delay playing like 25 K's on GG and stuff. <laughs> and we're talking about it. I mean, it was really kind of crazy. Um, but just listening to really good players talk and about their thought process. I mean, I think that to me was the biggest leap forward. And, you know, I'm sure like Carlos, you probably agree being in the seminars now, like, like listening to Jordan talk about, his thought process, you know, and just like hearing that over and over. I mean, that just, it just hammers into your head, you know? Yeah. You, you hear a lot of things that you didn't even know you didn't know. Mm -hmm. and we, and yeah. Like that, that's some of my, my favorites. Uh, yeah. There's so many blind spots in poker. And like we, we often say the newer you are, when you finally figure it out, you think you know everything, but actually the more you learn, the more you know that you don't know anything. And so, yeah, I have that experience a lot listening to um, better players speak. Yeah, I think it's it, that's really, really been very helpful, um, you know. And then I've got 
you know, I was really into the mental game kind of performance optimization side of it. Um, and so working a lot with Elliot Rowe from the beginning. And I think that was very um, helpful as well. So that's pretty much been the, the base recipe. Well, I, I love the bit about just like seeing poker on TV, having never played poker yourself and just immediately thinking like, oh, I could probably get good enough at that to make money. Like that's a very <laughs> unique because I mean, we've heard, I don't know, hundreds of people's origin stories at this point from from doing the show. And of course, a lot of people have that. I started in the moneymaker era story, but usually it's more similar to my own where it's like, oh, I grew up playing poker and I was always sort of interested in it. And then I was just, you know, graduating from college around the time that that happened. It was sort of perfect timing to, to get into this. But the idea of someone just seeing that and having the confidence to say, oh, I could probably get good enough at that to make money <laughs> like that's um that's it's great you know it's funny i mean like i always liked vegas like we used, we used to go to vegas every year when i was a kid and my parents would like let me pull the slots once on the way to breakfast and we play keno and stuff like that and like somehow the taste of like money won you know as opposed to like slogged and one although you don't realize <laughs> that eventually poker is gonna have, be, have its own element of slog but um like that had like this, this super sweet taste to it and i got into playing blackjack some in college and going to vegas and playing blackjack and you know trying to count a little bit and stuff but nothing that serious um, but that was just really fun and so knowing that i liked that element of it i was just like you know gotta be another computer game pretty much so so, Laura, when I had a similar experience with um, basically seeing poker played on TV uh, before I played it much in uh, in person. Mm -hmm. And like Andrew talks about most people that we talk to, they grew up playing poker with their family. But it sounds like neither you and I did that. I got into it as a way out of poverty. Like I kind of saw that it was something I could do for a living. And it sounded like you were kind of just using that to replace the PC games you played. But if you're going to play a game, you might as well make money money with it, I guess. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess like, so that was just the motivation. It's just like, you know, something that um, looks like it might be fun that you can make money at. Yeah, kind of. Um, you know, and I've, I've always been like a competitive person, but I wasn't somebody that was like super, like very athletic. So like the main of the things that I've done that have been competitive, like I played pool competitively in college. And then um, when I got into skydiving, um, I was into competitive skydiving for, and I was a skydiver for 24 years. Um, you know, so that was, you know, it's very physical, but um, so this has kind of like replaced as I've phased skydiving out has kind of replaced that big competitive outlet um, for me. So that's ultimately kind of the role that that's kind of, Plotted into. What was the origin of that? The, how, how did you get into skydiving? So I always knew I was going to do it. Like I remember being, I had a memory of being a kid and I think we were at an, a fair or an air show or something like that. And it was probably the Golden Knights demonstration team doing something. And you could see them like drawing, like with, you know, stuff and smoke in the sky. And then they were under parachutes and stuff. And I remember asking about it, you know, like, do you have to be in the army to be able to, you know, parachute? And people said, no, there's people who do it for fun. And I thought that's seriously. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, I'll do that. I, you know, someday I'll do, I'll do that for sure. And I always thought, I just always knew that I would. And, um, but I, when people, there were a couple of times in college, people were going to go and like do one jump. And I was like, no, you know, that's not for me. Cause once I need to have more money because I know it, I think it's expensive. And when I start, I'm going to keep doing it. And so I actually was in, um, I finished college and then I was in my residency. I was doing my internship year and 
somebody said there was a guy who wanted to go on a blind date or wanted to go on a date. He was like a anesthesiology resident and he wanted to go skydiving. And was I interested in going on a blind date and going skydiving? I was like, yeah, why not? Sure. And so I met this, met up with this guy. We jumped out of an airplane <laughs> in separate <laughs> tandems. and uh, the, the guy didn't stick, but the skydiving stuck. And uh, so I just kept jumping. I was an intern in surgery. And so it was a super stressful year. And to be able to have like this big outlet of like, you know, anti-stressing with skydiving was awesome. So that's, that's how it started. So I think some people might not find the experience of jumping out of a plane anti-stressful. <laughs> well, it's certainly scary at first, the first few times that you're doing it. And then you go through a period where you're just kind of in like, you're actually at probably the most risk because you're like so jazzed about skydiving and you just like want to keep doing it. And yet you don't realize like how bad you actually are and how inexperienced you are and how tunnel visioned you are. Um, and if you make it through all of that, then eventually you kind of come out the other side to where it's just fun and it's not really such a scary thing. I guess part of my concern would be the, well, I mean the, the, the packing your own shoot thing and and kind of knowing that like a little i mean i guess this is sort of the experience of being a surgeon also uh or, or a doctor also um but sort of like one one small mistake uh could just like a little bit of overconfidence like like the sort that you're talking about and it's not even necessarily something i mean i guess it gets safer over time but there's also the danger of sort of like like you described like getting complacent or i think like that's what i would be stressed about yeah, and that is at first, you know, and like ultimately, actually, you really spend very little time packing your own parachute. In fact, you, there's people who that's what they do for money. So you usually pay people to pack for you. Um, and so, and when you're training, well, so that, you have, that seems stressful. And it's because then you have to like yeah, trust you, that you person. You got to trust your packer. Yeah, but I mean, the, the really the bottom line is you have two parachutes. Right. And so um, you will on occasion have something wrong with your main parachute and have to jettison it and use your reserve. Like it's, I've probably had to. Um, use a reserve probably six or seven times over my 24 years, which is very low actually. But, you know, you get to know your packer and, you know, you, you know, trust you know, the people who are packing and they do it for a living. They're better than you. You know, that's, they're, that's, they're doing it all day long. So mm -hmm. they're better than you um, to begin with. But um, you know, so you just, you know, your emergency procedures and uh, you know, you open up your, your main parachute high enough that if you have to use a reserve, you do. So, and most, you know, but it's not, it is not a sport without risk. I mean, I've known a number of people over the 24 years who've died um, and I've known people who've been injured. So it's, uh, it is definitely not uh, a risk-free sport. You're describing to me very calmly right now, the experience of, uh, I just, you know, you know, your emergency procedures and you jettison the main shoot and you open the second shoot. I mean, is that your experience of it while it's happening? Or are you like, oh shit, this better, the second one better start, you know, like what's the... So I, I think that people experience um, sort of life-threatening situations differently, but most people who get into skydiving like are people who are pretty good at managing risk in real time. Like for me, when I've been in um, situations like that, like time slows down a lot um, and you just don't have, like you're just in problem solving mode. You don't have time to sit and, you know, like be scared, like you're not scared at all. Um, you know, you're just figuring out what you're going to do next. And with skydiving, I mean, it happens very fast. You know, something happens, you're pull, you're releasing that, you're opening a reserve. Like it all takes seconds. Um, but, you know, I was in a, what could have been a very serious car accident years ago where somebody, I mean, you know, going fast on the highway, somebody tries to pull into me and my car started spinning like in the middle of a highway going like 70 miles an hour. 
and I had a automatic or a stick shift, you know. And so while I'm spinning in the middle of the highway, thinking I'm actually there's a chance I might come out of this spin still going straight forward and maybe I'm not going to crash and should I be downshifting, you know, trying to think about like, how do I try to come out of this as safely as possible? And then it's like, Oh no, we're going off the road. And then I was into a guard, you know, one of those guard rope things and up the car, tore the car up. But, um, I don't get too panicked, um, at the time. And I, I suspect that that's probably not uncommon. It's just that you're just in problem solving mode, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I imagine that skydiving is probably safer than driving. If you think think about, like, you know, how often we are, you know, barreling down the highway at, like you said, 70 miles per hour, you know, especially in Vegas where, like, you know, 20% of the people are drunk. (laughs) There's Um, that. If you go by minutes involved in the sport, I would say yes. But, um, but, but skydiving definitely is, is, it is not a risk-free sport. It's so much safer than it was in the beginning, just because the equipment is so much better and there's automatic openers so that if you're knocked out, um, you know, that your reserve parachute is going to be opened when you go through a certain, you know, uh, altitude window. Um, so I actually was knocked out once <laughs> skydive, but, um, I didn't have to have that happen. So it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that can happen on skydives, but you can make it pretty safe um, and quite safe by, you know, doing the things you choose to engage in and who you choose to jump with and all that kind of stuff. Does that same kind of calmness under pressure carry over into poker where, you know, when you, when you're faced with a tough decision for your tournament life and, and a big important moment that you're just, if things are, are going slowly and you're just able to sort of assess, you know, okay, here's, here's what I need to do. And here's my range and here's their range and blah, blah, blah. I think like, I don't get, I mean, I don't feel scared, you know, or like, like that. I don't feel like super, like, and I think in the beginning, like you feel kind of nervous bluffing, you know, because it, when you're learning poker, I think there's part of you that still feels like you're trying to get it. You're getting away with something when you're bluffing, you know, and you're, you know, but eventually you understand when you come to learn how poker works, I mean, you basically like Jordan, will just talk about, you know, you have values, you know, and you have value hands and you have offsets, you know? And so once you know that the move that you're making is a correct move for the circumstances, you just make it. That's the end of it. Um, you know, and it's like, I would prefer that somebody fold when I don't have, you know, <laughs> when I'm doing it with ace high, but like, the correct decision has been made and I'm really, I've been really trying to focus on having my mindset be around that, which is, you know, my most of, I mean, anytime you enter a poker tournament, most of the tournament is already decided. The cards are going to come out in the order they're going to come out. And most of the decisions are straightforward. You know, you fold seven deuce, you raise aces, you know, like it's not like that much variation, you know, there's certain, situations and you know where you're going to influence things but a lot of it is fairly set so you're kind of watching a movie that's pretty much been scripted you can mess it up you can certainly screw the movie up but most of it should be played in a certain way and that's your job is to try to you know make the the very best move for each situation and if you've done that to the best of your ability on that day that's all you can do and most of the time you're just going to walk away and not cash and then move on to the next one. And I think if you get too arrogant and think that you are the one driving this ship in all circumstances, it's ridiculous. You're not, you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's really well said and, and very important. I do think that is what 
leads a lot of people astray is that belief that they should have been able to control something. Uh, and, and I think sometimes you get that feeling when a tournament has been going really well for you, that it feels like everything that has gone right has been, been because of good decisions <laughs> that you made. And so then it feels like it's, it's your tournament to blow, you know, like, Oh, if, as long as I don't screw it up, then mm -hmm. this will continue operating the way it's been operating for the last four hours. When in fact, you've just like <laughs> been riding a horseshoe for. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you just have to, I mean, and volume is the cure, you know, and that's why playing online, like when you, you no longer get that, you know, tossed around when like somebody hits something and it's like, Oh, it's, you know, they hit their, you know, five percenter, like what's going to happen. It's going to happen 5% of the time, which isn't that low. Like those things are just going to happen. And if you just sit and you allow yourself to get on this giant emotional roller coaster of these huge ups and downs and swings, that's exhausting. Um, and so, you know, it's, I mean, which was like in the prime tournament I was just in, I mean, I don't know that I've been at a final table where I've been like all in every other hand, practically like we were for a little <laughs> while of it. Um, and that's kind of nuts, but it was just like, you know, it's fun because it's like, all right, you know, I have Jacks and he has ace queen and we're going all in, of course, you know? So it's just like, it's going to, whatever it is, is what it's going to be. Um, and it wasn't a lot of, you know, it was you know, I definitely, and not like I played perfectly and I made mistakes, but it was really helpful. I think being listening to high level coaches and realizing that they are making mistakes too, like every tournament, mm -hmm. um, they're making fewer mistakes than me. Um, and you know, smaller mistakes, but that everybody's just on this trajectory of learning and that's the point. So, yeah, I think the tournaments are to some degree designed to, mess with exactly that that experience of um volume that, that you're describing where it's like yes you're going to play a lot of tournaments but you know there's only one wsop main event like how many opportunities are you going to have to make a, a six-figure mistake or you're only going to make so many final tables in in your mm -hmm. career i think it's a in many ways easier for a cash game player to tell themselves oh it's just another day at the office and like there are certain tournament experiences that that feel more special and i think that are, are created to feel more special precisely so that people can experience that thrill of this actually is a once in a lifetime or a, you know, a thrice in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. And I think like when I was at the prime final table, I felt like number one, just like walking in the door, it was my biggest cash because we were already at like 140 K. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm walking in as the chip leader, but like anything can happen and I could be out in sixth and like, I have to just like be completely okay with like, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You two coolers and you're done. You know, that's all it takes um, in one of these situations. And so I, what I really wanted to do is just like enjoy it and have fun. Like that's, I can control that piece, um, you know, and you know, I want to play well and not make a total fool of myself. That'd be ideal, but just not getting, you know, I, it's not like I wasn't involved. Like when I was all in, it's like, it's exciting and it's, you know, and it's fun, but you know, you just can't be devastated, you know, the way things you know turn out it's just flips or flips yeah i meant to say also when you were talking about the nervousness around bluffing for instance i think the times that i've been most nervous is when i wasn't sure that it was a good bluff you know where it was mm -hmm. like i was kind of acting out of desperation and then i was like oh crap i hope he doesn't like figure out what's going on versus if I know it's just like, I'm, I'm definitely supposed to bluff in this spot. So it's not a matter of my opponent sussing out that I'm like bluffing too much or, or, you know, getting a, 
I guess they could get a physical tell on me, but uh, versus if it's a thing where I'm like, oh, I don't even know if I'm supposed to bluff with this or it feels like I'm acting out of desperation, then I because I'm less confident, I guess then I'm also worried that there's more my opponent could potentially pick up on it and take advantage of. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I think um, just as I'm probably more likely to beat myself up over a mistake that I've made than I am about, you know, just like something that, you know, where I ran bad in a spot or whatever. But then that by the same token, I think um, you th- maybe if I've acted too fast, you know, and you're realizing mm-hmm. as you're sitting there and they're tanking, you know, you're like, you know what? My blockers kind of suck. Right. <laughs> and you're like, that's not really great. You know, like I, I, I'm starting to really hate that I have the spade here, you know, and then you're like, but let's just think about pink elephants or something else different because, mm-hmm. you know, you're a chipster in the middle. So <laughs> well, the their best. tanking is like giving you time to reflect on everything you might have done wrong. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. What was the, the transition? I mean, you mentioned starting with Limit games uh how, how did you move into playing no limit tournaments so i i was i hadn't played no limit at all and didn't really understand it but i remember i was up at like the tropicana or something playing like i wanted to play and they didn't i wanted to play like two four or three six or something and they didn't have any seats um they said we have one two no limit seats and i'm like man i don't know i don't know what i'm doing there and they're like oh it's just the same except you can bet more money i'm like like i don't really want to do it but okay so it's a way I can play something. And so I remember sitting, I was like, hmm, this seems pretty different. You know, and I was like, I actually really like the fact that if I think that somebody's drawing, I can bet bigger and make it worse. You know, like I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and it's like you funny. You think back on some of these times that are so funny. Um, I was playing limit in the early days, like at the Bellagio or something. And I raised on the river and I remember this guy like, Daring me down. And it was like a young Asian kid or whatever. And he's like, you have Jack nine here. Is that in your range? And I remember ha- having the very distinct thought of what's a range. <laughs> like, what is he talking about? Like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And I remember just thinking, I was like thinking about that. So it's like, whatever it is that he thought he was reading on my face, I'm thinking what's a range. And uh, <laughs> I just thought, that's so funny. I was like, I'm going to have to like, look up what that is later. It was obviously very early on, but uh, it was just so funny. And of course, like, you have it because you're, you know, you're a beginner and you don't know what you're doing. So you're not like bluffing and limit on the river, but it's funny. Yeah. I mean, for all the people who think it's no big deal to talk strategy at the table, like this kid created the monster that is Laura Eisenberg by (laughs) (laughs) teaching her about the existence of ranges. Well, well, the person who probably, right. When I was, um, so from playing that no limit the one time, then there was some there were some charity tournaments around DC, um, so that seemed like a fun way to get to play live tournaments that were around here. So I played some of those and then really liked it. Like I liked that it was a story that with had a beginning, a middle, and an end, um, and it was looking for online content. And that's where somewhere along the way that I stumbled into um, WPT bootcamp. And so I went the first one I went to, I think was in it. No, I think it was either Vegas or Atlantic City. I can't remember. But it was the two Knicks were doing it and then Linda and Jan. And um, I had read a lot of stuff by then. So I was already pretty familiar with odds and like how all that stuff worked. But there was, you know, a lot, number of new concepts and stuff like that. And we ended up like at the end of the first or the second day, they would do like these sit and go tables, you know, and so you, you would do a sit and go tournament. But they were watching you to see like, did you, 
you know, are you putting into play the stuff they had been talking about and all that? And I got down to heads up with this guy and I thought, he's, I think this guy is only like raising when he actually has really good stuff. So I think I can actually just, you know, just like limp into everything and just, you know, base my play off of what he's doing, which is what I was doing. Um, and then I was like slowly accumulating chips and then Jan or Linda or whatever went over and and whispered in his ear and told him to just basically start raising everything. (laughs) And so he just started like raising and jamming everything. And eventually we like got in a flip, but, um, but I felt pretty good about how I played. And then I came in the next day and Jan came up to me and said, you know, Linda and I have been watching you because, you know, you came in here with the most knowledge of anybody, you know, here, and we were really excited to see how you were going to play. And I was like getting kind of pumped up and like feeling really good about myself. And then she said, and you played like a goddamn pussy. And I went, oh my God. And she just like punched me. Like she like, I felt like she yeah. just like punched me like right in the face. And uh, I was like, she's like, you know, you need to be aggressive and do this stuff. So I thought like, wow, you know, I, I guess I do need to be aggressive. So then I just started like being super aggressive, not knowing what I was doing, but just figuring out, okay, I'm not going to be passive. And uh, so I was like on the other extreme for a long period of time. But so I credit Jan with uh, being the first one to push me into aggressiveville. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's a great that's that's a great story. It's like when you when you have these like you know OG players that look up that you look up to and they and you feel like you're doing what they would want you to do and they kind of like see something in you. It's like they saw something in you that knew that you can you know receive that the way they meant it and mm-hmm. you know to to motivate you. So like that that story fires me up. It was really funny. Um, she had no memory of it years later when I when I when I mentioned it to her. But uh, yeah, so that was that was great. Yeah, I feel like I'd be a little horrified for someone to tell me that I said that to them, and I'd be like, I guess I just have to trust that in the moment I, I knew what I was doing. That that like felt like that was an okay <laughs> thing to say. But it was perfect coming from Jan. It was great. So, um, but yeah, they they did a really good job in WPT boot camp back in the day of creating this. Um, kind of a blueprint of structure, which, you know, was designed to allow you to kind of play tournaments and do reasonably well. Like, you know, people didn't like a lot of tournament strategy really wasn't that fleshed out then, you know? So, you know, they basically wanted you to have one bet size, you know, post flop and stuff like that. And it was just, you know, but it worked really well. Like you had rules that you followed um, and, that kind of kept you out of trouble and long enough and not going broke fast enough that you could, you know, play and uh, be in the game for a while. So it was a really great, and it actually, I, you know, I still hang out with a little group of folks who we got to know each other way back during those uh, times. So it was kind of fun. You know, I've, I've often said, and I think this is getting more and more true that the real limit or, or the real cost of most poker training materials is not the, the dollar value, like you've, you've mentioned of all the, all the different things you've done, how many of them felt like a good value in terms of their, their dollar cost. But the real cost of course, is the time that you're putting into them. Like, you know, if, if you're attending nine seminars a week or even two or three seminars a week, like that's a much bigger cost than the $60 a month that, that you're paying for the thing. And mm-hmm. I, mean, I think even a lot of professional players struggle to find the time to engage with that much training material. And I know that you're still working. Is it every other week you're, you're working as a radiologist? 
Well, I'm actually about to cut back. So (laughs) as after this particular week that we're on, I'm going to start working one week on and two off. So I'll be playing a little bit more, but, uh, but that's generally what it's been. And so, you know, and you, I think that the point that you're getting to, like, how do you work in that much content, you know, you know, going through courses and stuff like that. And I think I disagree with the mantra that um, is, I don't, I don't disagree with it, but, you know, generally people will tell you like, oh, if you're going to study, you know, you need to fully engage with the material. If you're not taking notes, you're wasting your time, you know, like all these kind of things that you hear. And while I think that if you give somebody a video and you say, I want you to study this optimally, that's the best way to do it. You know, don't be distracted, take notes, do all this other stuff, but it's not the only way to do it. Um, and it, if if what you can do is have your computer, your laptop, and walk around with it while you're doing chores or doing other things and stay focused enough to be getting a lot out of it, and you can do that day after day times 20 years, you pick up enough stuff, you know? Um, and for a lot of people who are busy and have jobs and have other things going on, that may be, you know, what they can do. And mm-hmm. I think it's okay. Um You know, and that's better than not doing something because you feel like, oh, you're not doing it the way that other people are telling you. You have to do it in order to, you know, learn things. You know, you can, you know, listen to, you know, 10 minutes of a video in the morning and then another 10 minutes while you're having your lunch and you can listen to 10 minutes, you know, some of them and still get a lot out of that. Yeah, you know, it's like there's so many people that won't get started unless they think they can do it 100%. And Mm -hmm. like those are the people that, you know, we make money against and we might only be doing it 70, 80%. But like you said, you do it consistently at that rate. It's not about being perfect. It's about being better than your opponent, you know, relative edge. And the other thing is, you know, people have like, if you enjoy studying, you're going to make time for it. Because if you say you don't have time for it, that means you're using your time for something else. Like you probably do something you enjoy, you know, during the day. So uh, like I doubt very many people are working 16 hours a day. So when you're not working, you're spending your free time doing something you enjoy. And if what you enjoy is studying, then you're going to progress in the game. But if you don't enjoy studying, you're going to do those other things and then say, Oh, I can't make time for studying because there's not enough hours in a day. But, um, yeah, I can think of a lot of things that, um, a normal person would view as fun and entertaining that is less fun and entertaining than studying to me. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you make small gains repeated over time, you know, just like they talk about with habits, you know, and, you know, if you're doing, you know, like I've always done um, drills, you know, every day, you know, pre-flop drills, post-flop drills and stuff like that, you know, and, you know, shove push fold shove bots and stuff like that. If you do that every day, you know, for even if it's 10 minutes every single day without fail over years, that's a lot of time, you know, thing. It's just that you have to get to the long run uh, of, of doing that. But I, and I think it's a case in point in that I don't play that much. Um, I don't play as much as a lot of people. Um, and certainly I don't play as much as somebody who's playing online full time. You know, I online at most, I play, you know, a couple of days a month you know, and maybe, you know, a really good month, maybe four days a month, but that's very rare. Um, and then I just play, you know, tournament series when they come around. That's it. But studying you can do when you have any period of time playing online tournaments to me, at least, you know, I 
um, it's just a very, it's an all day commitment, mm-hmm. um, you know, to play 20 tournaments or however many, I usually play six to eight tables. Um, so, you know, fewer, you know, fewer games if I'm doing going deep in several, but you know, that's a, you know, about average, but I mean, that's an all day commitment. And if in my job, as it's been for the last few years, working seven on seven off, that means every other weekend is tied up. Um, and, um, you know, I like to spend weekends with my wife. So, you know, I'm just not playing as much as other people, but if you are spending chunks of free time studying, you can make up for not playing to it. I think a pretty significant degree. Does, um, are, are you on the late registering train? So I will late register. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the bullet that I ended up cashing with the prime, I max late reg that not by desire, but, um, I almost didn't fire it because there was such a long line to get back in because they undershot, you know, the expectation of the turnout by so much that it was like you were having to wait like an hour and a half or two hours to get back in. Um, And so when I busted, it was like I was going to buy in like just very close to the registration closing and knowing I was just going to go to dinner and come back and have like 17 bigs or something. Um, And I was not going to do it. And then there was a guy who's like, dude, it's a $5 million prize pool. I'm like, yeah, what the heck? It's a donation. Here's another 1100. And, uh, you know, then that was the one, but online I will do, um, like when I first sit down, if there's good things that are open that are in max light reg, I'll, I'll go ahead and fire those. Uh, But I don't generally make that the, the plan. And for live tournaments, I like to be there at the start. You know, I don't really have that much of an issue with stamina on tournament days. And I'd rather be in, in the beginning when, you're shorthanded with the weakest players. That's such a great time to be in a tournament. Yeah, I, I thought of this when you all were just talking about the, the thing of studying of you don't necessarily have to do it perfectly, where a lot of people's discomfort around late registering is like, well, but isn't it more plus EV to register on time? And like, I'm, I'm, I think sometimes it's not, but even when it is, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, okay, well, but there are also other things you could be doing with that time or... Um, just, you know, people have different, they have a job or, you know, they're only able to get to the casino at a certain hour or something like that. So the idea that like, oh, it could have been even better if I had bought in on time is not necessarily a reason, you know, an argument against late registering. Like it is still going to be, uh, if it was plus EV for you to enter initially, it's probably still plus EV for you to late register, even if it would have been more plus EV to, to start on time. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do think that Ape Styles has generally been of the opinion, which I I think is like in live tournaments, I'll usually just pop right back in um, when I bust. Um, but online, I think there is an argument to say it's very plus EV to be in, in the beginning. But if you're not going to be in the beginning, um, then usually what I'll do is just wait until the very last second and right then because a third of the field's gone, but you're left with not a third of the field, but you're left with a third of the field, you know, and you're getting in with your whatever it is, eight bigs or 10 bigs or maybe 12 if you're lucky. But, you know, nobody can really deny your equity. <laughs> it's just, you're going to get all of your equity uh, for your 10 bigs. So it's, uh, I've had pretty decent success doing super late reg online things. It's just very high variance. So you just need to be, I think, pretty well world for it. Yeah. It's something that is more uh, beneficial to um, uh, full-time players for that reason. Um, because you have to, uh, like you said, the, the variance killer is volume. And so if you're someone who doesn't get uh, as much time to play 
Um, even if you're a very skilled player, uh, late resin may not be something that you want to do. But if you're playing online and you're playing for a living, yeah, it's so great because um, you um, you can uh, get more volume in, and that that reduces that variance. Yeah, that makes sense. The I, it still took me a while to come around on it, but my previous co-host Nate. Um, said something that has, has stuck with me of sort of like if you could buy into a cash game that had antis and you could buy in for any amount that you wanted as, as big or small as you wanted, it would be really hard to do better than just buying in for a single ante. <laughs> like the ability to invest that one ante, you get such an amazing price on that. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it gets to your point. It's just like being all in is incredibly powerful and people confuse the like, yeah, you're not a favorite to win the tournament by the late registering, but like nobody's a favorite to win the tournament, you know, yeah. um, you are a favorite to make it to hour six or whatever, which, you know, people are starting on time who are not planning to reenter or not. Uh, so I think it's sort of like the, again, there's, there's the focus on one particular outcome that the sort of a pie in the sky outcome that, you know, is, is very far away for everybody. And when you break it down and think of it as just like a wager and or what kind of wager am I going to be able to make as a result of late registering, then yeah, your opportunities start to look pretty good when you realize like the goal of tournament poker is just to invest chips. Well, it's not to win tournaments. And that really brings up the thing, which I've thought about some about the main event, mm -hmm. which you can late reg on day two, you know, and with 75 bigs, you know, I mean, you look at somebody like me, like I'm a tournament player. I'm not running around with 300 bigs very long, <laughs> yeah. very often, you know, that like I've thought about, like, maybe that's, maybe that's the play. Um, because, you know, I've busted on day one once and, you know, lots of people I know have busted on day one and, or gotten to day two with less than starting stack. Um, you know, just get around all of it. And, uh, but there's so much value being there in the beginning that it's hard to, hard to pass up on. Yeah, especially if you are someone who is uh, kind of like the moment is special to you, like you want to spend as much time in the main event as possible because it's like a big deal for you, then I do think it's worth it uh, to, to play early. But if you're just like, this is just another tournament on your schedule and you're just trying to um, maximize your win rate, uh, like lay rage also helps in that regard in terms of giving you a uh, a boost in your hourly uh, when you start thinking about it from a pro professional level, especially what uh, Andrew was talking about uh, using Nate's example of thinking about it at, on a um, cash game equivalency. Like some of these online tournament tournaments, if you um, view it that way, level one is kind of like playing five cent, ten cent, and so mm -hmm. if that's not something you would normally do anyway, it makes a lot of sense to skip that. And, um, and, and like we said earlier, the, um, the, uh, you know, if you get enough volume in, that's going to reduce your variance, but it also increases your hourly. So, but that's not something that, you know, a lot of people are concerned with when they play the main event, they're there for the experience. Yeah, that's true. How many times do you play the main event? I think it's gotta be five, maybe I have never cashed the main event. Oh. So I have usually like my signature move is to make it to like late on day three and bust not that far from the money uh, to like maximize the pain. But yeah. um, that's, that's been my mo main move. We call that um, instead of first place, it's worst place. 
<laughs> That's about right. <laughs> yeah, that was like the worst was one time there had been some guy who's he had gotten food poisoning was what I had heard on day two and had to like go to the hospital. So his stack was at our table on day three, you know, which created all these like weird scenarios where it's like, <laughs> Oh, is somebody raising because the big blinds dead kind of stuff. But actually it's just cause they have aces. But, um, like his stack survived me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst. Like I should have just had food poisoning and been in the hospital. I've been better. So pretty funny, but maybe this will be the year I finally cash the main. You had mentioned like Elliot Rowe and, and uh, I think you said Jared Tendler being people who are pretty mm -hmm. big influences on you. Uh, I mean, for, for dealing with that kind of pain, are there specific things that you remember um, picking up from them that have like stuck with you or, you know, how, how do you deal with those frustrations? Well, there's been so much good. I mean, like I, I liked a lot of Jared's work dealing with tilt and stuff like that. Um, and just that vocabulary, like naming the different kinds of tilt, I think is, was a you know big contribution to the poker lexicon. Yeah, I liked that a lot, and how it just kind of opened up your world about like what does it mean, you know, to be on tilt. And I think like Elliot ex basically considers it anything that's not playing optimally, um, you know, which is an even more expanded kind of you know idea. But um, like Elliot's stuff in the beginning was a lot of um, MP3s and focused on uh, the hypnotherapy aspect of it, um, which is how I found out about him because he was advertising for these MP3s and I, I bought a bunch of them. Um, and then he had like a volume maximizer course. And then he had his first version of what's now the A-game masterclass, um, which, you know, was it covered everything from pregame routines and rituals to like maximizing nutrition and, you know, exercise and sleep and all of this, like every aspect of stuff that's not strategy. Um, and I just, I just loved that and thinking about like all these edges that you can take, um, and find that are easy, you know, but other people aren't going to be doing them necessarily or doing them optimally and you can do them and they're free. Um, you know, and so things that you can do in game, you know, of check, having a mental check-in with yourself hourly, um, you know, about, you know, how you're playing and are you, you know, what things that you can do to, you know, go from your B game to your A game, um, you know, in the next, you know, thing while you're, you know, next series that you're going up to or whatever. Um, and, and that stuff has all just been, um, has been really, really helpful and having an appropriate cool down um, afterwards to kind of put things away. But, you know, and I had certain tilt things of my own in the beginning, like some things around bullying um, and stuff from like having been a kid and so, and some of it comes from not understanding like how the game works, you know, so I would get really upset, you know, or just like I'd get off my game if people were, somebody was three betting me a lot, you know, mm -hmm. and like by a lot, it could be like three times, you know, <laughs> right. where you're just like, you know, this guy just is picking on me and he just thinks because, you know, I'm not as experienced that he's just going to take advantage of me. Well, you know, screw him, you know, and it's like, oh no, actually he just like picked up three good hands. You know, but you're like concocting this giant story about it. Um, and I worked through that aspect of tilt with him, um, which was really helpful. Um, and then also just some of the things around being stubborn, you know, where, you know, you like, you know, you're beaten, you know, but you just are like, you call anyway, whatever on the river. Like, I mean, that's just a common, you know, like, and working through that was another uh, one that he was really helpful with. And so, you know, I think we all have tendencies that we can slide back into if we're tired or, you know, just really off of our game. 
um, and knowing what yours are and being on alert for them is, is really good. Like, I think I've kind of worked through those. Um, but I just like focusing on all the different aspects of, um, how do you optimize your performance? Um, you know, that started for me in skydiving, you know, cause I was on teams and we were, um, that the first like performance book that I read was while I was training in skydiving and, you know, ta- they talked about all this stuff about visualization and, um, you know, things that you can do uh, and meditation. And I started getting into all of that stuff when I was in skydiving and that stuff carries over really well, uh, to poker, of course. What does an optimal cooldown look like for you? It depends on live versus online for sure. Um, so online, um, you know, I'm usually going to listen to a cooldown MP3 of his. Um, it's a, if I bust early enough, I'll go over marked hands, you know, just to kind of like put stuff to bed. Um, if it's really late, and then I'll usually just listen to an MP3 and go to sleep um, and then review things the next day. Um, but I usually end up at least like entering my, t- my tournament data into PT4 because it doesn't import it correctly. Um, so I have all that stuff in there, which is just dumb and type A and anal, but I do. And then uh, I do that in a cool down and, and then go to sleep. Like I've, Elliot's voice will put me, his like cool down will put me to sleep like every single time. It's like worth its weight in gold. This, uh, we're recording this on, on a Monday. So this would typically be my uh, time for reviewing hands from uh, Sunday that I wanted mm-hmm. to review. And uh, I'm speaking with you instead. Well, thank you very much. What, um, oh yeah, I, I meant to ask you about uh, community. So you, you'd mentioned before the enjoying the the process of studying. And it seemed like to, hearing you talk about you know, BBZ and, and some of these other seminars that you'd been in that, there was a sense of community around those also that you're on a first name basis with the instructors and uh, you know, presumably are kind of like collaborating with, with the other people in, in the group and stuff. And um, is that, am I picking up on something there? Is, has that been kind of like part of what's making the, the studying process enjoyable for you? Yeah, I think that that's, that's true. Probably my closest poker friend is Pat, um, who is um, a friend from back in the, um, the, the online uh, the WPT bootcamp days, um, you know, and so we do study together some, um, and then, you know, I have some other local friends, um, like Yasser and others that, you know, we do, you know, talk about hands and go over things, but it's nice to have that community that's there. I mean, you have resources of people that you can get extra coaching from, um, you know, which is, you know, awesome, but, you know, it's, I haven't been as active like in the forums as, um, you know, on discord as I probably would like be you know it's i'm sure there's a lot of really good information there but there's just a lot of really good and high level people um in the community which is awesome but it's nice to know the coaches you know because when when i made the final table uh, of prime i had to fly home and work for like three days and then turn around and fly back out uh, for it and i was able to hook up with yargo and you know he ran sims um, and we did a few coaching sessions going over sims um, and then, um, because I'm affiliated, uh, you know, with Preflop Academy, they actually imported, uh, ran Sims for me and then imported them into a private feed on the site. So I could just basically play games of my initial tournament setup situation and practice, uh, looking at all nice. kinds of different situations. So, I mean, that's just like how amazingly set up. Uh, because of being, you know, plugged into these groups. Whereas if you're just trying to do everything on your own, um, it's pretty inefficient. So that was, that was huge. 
and then Pat and I went over situations too, but having this stuff, you know, having people that can run Sims for you uh, while you're working and doing other stuff is just amazing. Yeah. I don't think I even know what that is. Preflop Academy. Um, so Preflop Academy is, um, Pavel is, um, the one who, uh, he's one of the, the founders of it. He, when we were with Elevate, which was part of Max Value, he created this spreadsheet, which basically just had all of the preflop, you know, like you just click on, you know, 60 big blinds, you know, versus raise first in, you know, I'm a big blind, they're hijack. And it would just immediately show you, you know, the ranges, you know, here's your, your, th- your three bet ranges, which are call ranges, you know, folding, et cetera. Um, but it was extremely accessible and easy to navigate. Um, and so there were several of us that paid like a lot of money to have this spreadsheet <laughs> back in the day. And that was the precursor to what is now the site, um, which has just the most beautifully presented ranges. And um, so I've been affiliated with him um, since the beginning, pretty much. And it's, it is just really a great site that you can drill. Um, you can use it as a warm up. You can do drills, um, you know, and you can just study. So you can like click and compare side by side. So like, let's say you're wanting to explore um, your um, response as the big blind versus the button um, 40 big blinds effective, but you don't want to just look at chip EV. You want to look at, you know, if half the field's gone, if you're left, you know, if you're on the bubble, uh, 10% of the field's left, you can just put those, you know, click through and just cl- and compare all of those ranges immediately side by side in a really beautifully visible format. And you can import them into PO solver uh, or other solvers if you want to run things on your own from there. Um, it's just, I, I think it's just a very, very valuable site. You can, it has a phone app. Um, it's, it just makes learning pre and post or pre-flop ranges uh, really good. They're working on some post-flop stuff as well, but they've got ICM, all these final table solves. Um, it's it's just a really amazing site. Well, that kind of side by side comparison that you're talking about, I think, is is really important because I think sometimes people panic. Uh, another one of those worrying that they're not using a thing optimally. You know, where you you can look at this spreadsheet, and I imagine some people would find that overwhelming. Of just like, oh, there's like a zillion different ranges on here, and uh, how am I supposed to memorize all this? I was like, well, of course you're not supposed to memorize all of it. So doing those kinds of side mm-hmm. by side comparisons that you're talking about is useful to see, you know, you, you you learn heuristics of like, okay, when you're under the gun, you do this. And when you're in the hijack, you do this. And then when you're in the button, you do this. And so what what is this general trend of as I move around the table, how do these ranges start start to change? It's not that you're memorizing the range at, at every single spot or you know, as I get deeper, how do my ranges change? As I get shallower, how do my ranges change? So being able to, to do those comparisons and having different like visualization tools, uh, for me at least, that's that's been huge for you know better understanding these concepts. Yeah, there's a lot that I think has evolved visually um, that has been really helpful. So like the color coding and things that they have on Preflop Academy is really great. And of course, like um, GTO Wizard, which I think you're affiliated with, um, you know, we use them tons in BBZ as well. Um, just the visual representation that they have of like, wow, okay, so you can look at, you know, and see what your whole flop strategy is here on every single flop um, in this, you know, setup. And just seeing it graphically is you know, like amazingly helpful. Um, and there's just the way that they represent things with colors and uh, graphically, like with that thing where you kind of tile across the bottom and you can see like, oh, wow, like I'm basically like almost always like checking at least 70% of the time, you know, out of position here. And that really sticks in your brain 
you know, more than you know, just people saying things or, you know, trying to look at things one at one range at a time. Yeah. It, it's been cool. The stuff that I've been writing for them, because I was very aware when I was writing my books of like, it would be nice to be able to, you know, I'm personally, I'm a very like words oriented person. So mm-hmm. I can, I mean, I still find the visualizations helpful, but I think I don't always appreciate how much some people truly need that, like that, you know, seeing the thing is essential for some people. And so I was aware of that in, in writing my books, but I didn't have access to the tools or I wasn't that good at creating that kind of material myself. And so now writing about poker and having access to those kinds of visualization tools. And to be clear, a lot of this, I'm not actually doing, they have a team that's like better at using those tools. So I like write the articles and then they still often are the ones adding the graphics to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I I just feel like as an, I feel like I learned things rereading my own articles now, (laughs) just like seeing the visualizations that they've added to it is like enhancing my understanding of stuff that I wrote. Yeah, I liked, um, yeah, I mean, in your uh, Play Optimal Poker books, I mean, I thought it's books that are written really well, that are also where a a way of thinking is then reinforced over and over again. You know, like I think in yours, it was sort of a four step thinking process of, you know, sort of what is the optimal uh, solution here? What is their mistake? You know, what, how am I altering that uh, going forward based on that? Um, Like uh, that having thought processes like that, I think are really, um, very helpful. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, so I often at this point would, would, uh, ask if there was other like material that you wanted to recommend and, and you've recommended a lot already. So certainly if you, if you have more, but also I'd be curious, just other, um, it wouldn't have to be poker specific, just any like books, music, movies, whatever, just stuff that, uh, you would encourage people to check out. Um, I haven't gotten to spend as much time. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna. I, my, I plan to do more with my upcoming more <laughs> spare time is reading more fiction. Um, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time reading books on like performance optimization and stuff like that. Um, you know, and you know, books like um, Josh Waitkin, Wait, uh, Waitskin's book on uh, the art of learning and you oh, know, yeah. those kind of things, which I thought were really you know good books, um, but. As far as um, for self-optimization, there's a, um, a site. Uh, it's like right now it's an app. I think the app part of it is free called Heroic. Um, and it's a really neat way of kind of operationalizing areas of your life that you want to improve in, whether, you know, just parts of yourself that you want to develop, whether they're virtues that you want to be putting in action more. Um, it's and I, and I do really like that. Like one of the things that I plan on doing um, with my poker going forward is I'm cutting back a little bit more on work um, is I decided before the prime event that I was going to donate uh, 10% of my net winnings to charity, which I did. I was able to give 30 grand uh, to things directly benefiting Ukraine um, for buying ambulances and then um, Jose Andres charity. Um, and that's, kind of one of the directions that I see my poker career going, going forward is to be able to, you know, use it as a platform of a, of a way to be able to give back, um, you know, being involved in poker league of nations, um, as an ambassador for them. Um, that's another way that I see being able to, um, you know, kind of give back to the community, uh, some too, I'm going to be doing some sort of an upcoming, uh, lecture or seminar before, um, one of the ladies events in April, I think. Um, but that's, 
you know, some of that is sort of the direction I see going forward. That's not exactly answering your question, but that's no, it's, it's interesting. Now, that's actually not a thing I I heard of. Can you talk about that for a second? Of the, the League of Nations, I think you said it was. Oh, called? Poker, yeah, Poker League of Nations. There's there are several um, you know women's oriented poker organizations, and they're all I think uh, good and have slightly different spin on things. Um, Lena had asked me be an ambassador for poker league of nations after I won a bracelet. Um, you know, and that's, you know, been great. And, you know, I, you know, I like being able to have the opportunity to give, um, you know, to help other women in the game, um, but to help other people in the game. You know, I, I was always somebody who I've primarily been involved competing in sports that, or things that happen to be very male dominated for whatever random reason, uh, Pool certainly was, skydiving very much was, and poker very much is, um, you know, very male dominated as well. Um, you know, and it kind of ties back a little bit to some of the things you guys were talking about in Justin's um, interview and talking about, you know, race in poker um, and women in poker um, and stuff. But I do think that people seeing other variations of poker, what it means to be a poker player is very good and very helpful. You know, there's, it's just, there's nothing genitalia wise. that's super helpful about playing poker to be one <laughs> gen- gender or the other that I, at least that I've recognized, but um, you know, but I think that you have no idea what you're missing out on. Oh man, that's <laughs> the worst. But uh, the, uh, I had a woman come up to me at this series after I won the bracelet who said, you know, I saw you on TV and you said, you know, anybody can come out and they should come out and just play and it's, and have fun. And that's why I'm here. And I was like, wow, you know, that's really cool. Yeah, um, nice. So I, you know, I think I certainly had not, like, I think for a lot of women, like why aren't there more women in poker? I mean, a part of it's time certainly for tournament players. Um, and you know, if, if people are women are, you know, have kids, it's hard to have that kind of, free time to play for longer periods of time. But I think also it's just like what you encounter, you know, like why are there not more women playing pool? Like you're just not hanging out in bars playing pool as much as a woman maybe. And we're not encountering it growing up as much. Um, You know, I certainly hadn't, you know, and like girls in their teen years aren't getting together and like hanging out and playing poker. So, you know, the more people see it and are exposed to it as my niece now is, um, the more likely they are to play. She was super excited watching the live stream and telling me, you know, about somebody had a straight and all this stuff. Too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's cute. so awesome. She's, yeah, she's seven. <laughs> so, she's, so I got her a poker set. And so she now is learning how to play poker at age, at age eight. So. So you had told me earlier on you weren't in a rush. Is, is that still the case? Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, no, I have, I have time. Okay, because this this brought up a whole other thing that um, you, when we talk about representation, or you, you you've talked about it in the context of uh, other women, you know, seeing seeing you as a model or something like that. But I also think because uh, we know you know some of the same people from the Maryland poker community, I think there are also some people who like probably don't know any other lesbians, or at least not any other like out people, out women who are married to women. Mm. Um, and I don't want to, you know, name anybody's names, but you know, I, I think there are some people who, like, I think seem to genuinely like you. And there's a lot of diversity in, in the Maryland poker community in general in terms of, um, you know, racially and, and things like that. And, and I imagine there are some folks who, if it weren't for their playing poker, they would be living in, like, very sheltered uh, circumstances. And I'm curious, like, how aware are you of, of being... Um, 
I guess the only lesbian in their life, if, if that's even the right word. Well, you know, it's, I actually think there's a lot of lesbians in poker. Um, at, at least I know some, a chunk of folks. <laughs> so, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, and I don't know, like, you know, I don't know that there's a tally. Like I didn't sign up on a register, but to say like, <laughs> but yeah, I bet if that, if we did, there would probably be pretty good representation, like compared to, I mean, I think they always say like, Oh, 10% of the population is gay. I think that's high, but I bet it's overrepresented in poker already. I would, I think that that's likely the case. Um, but you know, who knows? I haven't had anybody really talking to me much about it. Um, and I'm not like super active, um, in the gay community or anything, but, um, you know, I think if somebody sees it and thinks that they great, that's, you know, that's a, a place that's, you know, welcoming or whatever to somebody that's like me, that's awesome. You know, I've actually, I've never really had any issues around like being harassed in playing poker or anything like that. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about other people and their issues as that anyway, as that relates to me, like if somebody has made any assumptions based on me and f- because of this, that, or the other thing that's really mainly their leak. So I don't spend a lot of my time worrying about it, but um, I think that the sense that I have is that poker is much more inclusive and welcoming than it certainly used to be um, on many different fronts, um, whether it's, uh, you know, women or, um, you know, people of, of all kinds of different diversities. And hopefully that will continue to be the case um, that we keep, moving more and more in that direction. Yeah. I guess what, what I meant to say really is I, I think that you are probably um, contributing to normalizing or, or the sort of people who might otherwise be inclined to, uh, to make assumptions or to think like, Oh, you know, that's the, I don't know, just, just like don't have any, any connection otherwise to, gay people and through poker, not only yourself, but uh, mm. you know, pe- people that they're meeting in in poker, like the, their existence in that community, I guess it's not just representation that you're providing to other women or to other gay people or something, but you know, to, to people who might not otherwise interact socially with, uh, with very many gay people. It seems like that's, uh, I mean, I think it's part of the value of poker in general is like bringing different types of people together. Yeah. I think that that's just always true in general, right? I mean, and especially with the recent trends in things like um, people, there's, you know, there's been a lot of movement in the country lately, sort of kind of away from inclusivity as far as LGBTQ things go, whether it's um, trying to crack down on drag queen shows, you know, to, you know, whatever. Hopefully that trend will not continue to go in that direction. But I think that the more anybody sees people outside of the normal circles that they're walking in, that's great, you know, and, you know, when, whether it's racially related or, um, you know, gender or gender or orientation, um, you know, whatever it is, you know, I imagine that there's, you know, I haven't had a lot of people asking me, you know, direct questions um, along those lines, but, you know, if I am, somebody hasn't been exposed to a lot of gay women and and there I am. And that's, you know, one example of somebody who seems half uh, reasonable. And I think that's probably pretty good. 
Yeah, that, that's really what I'm driving at. It's a, mm-hmm. Reasonable is a good word there of just like, oh, this is a person who is actually very much like myself and we have this thing in common of poker and, and we can like sit around the table. And we, so it doesn't even necessarily have to be something that's like openly discussed, but it's just like it it's there and, and you're just like cool and friends with them now because of this common uh, interest or hobby that you have. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I love about um, poker is just like, Poker doesn't care, you know, and you'd have like people from every walk of life, you know, it's like you can, you have somebody who's driving trucks and then somebody else is a lawyer and, you know, and somebody, and it's just like, everybody's just kind of this melting pot of everything all mixed together at one table and then doing one common activity. And that's really neat. Like in skydiving, it was sort of like that, but it's an expensive sport. And so if you're either like a skydive bum who's doing it full time, you know, and that's you, you don't need to have a lot of money because you're an instructor or you're generally somebody who has a pretty good job because it's an expensive sport. Um, and so it, it wasn't really exactly a cut across all of society in that um, in that way, not in the same way. I mean, not that poker can be expensive, too, but, you know, but you can go sit down at a one two table or a one three table and, you know, play, you know, most people can play you know that for some period of time um so i think you get a bigger swath of humanity or you can deal poker i mean i think that's the, the closest thing that we have to a skydiving bum are the that's the true dealer right? i mean people who are kind of wanting to be around the poker world but maybe aren't able to cut it as professionals themselves yet but they can still sort of be be in poker culture yeah yeah i just i just think it's it's fascinating to get to meet people from all over the world and and different things. So I'm so excited um, as we started talking in the beginning that I'm going to Amsterdam on uh, Saturday to play in the WPT prime event uh, there. My wife and I had been wanting to go to Amsterdam anyway. And so I was like, Hey, they just announced their dates. What do you think? And she's like, let's do it. So that'll be my first international um, trip playing poker, which, you know, I'm sure will be different and fun and unique in its own uh, way hopefully profitable but fun for sure yeah and that would be my main reluctance to late registering the main event is i feel like that's the time when i most experience that of meeting different different kinds of people and people with different sorts of relationships to, to poker and yeah. i think i've even become kind of jaded about it at this point because it's almost like um taken i, I basically just take for granted that I have friends all over the world uh, as a result of poker. But my first couple of experiences at the main event, that was like the neatest thing to me was I'm sitting next to a guy from the Czech Republic. I've never met anyone from the Czech Republic before. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really fun. I think being at the big events, you know, where there's just people from all over the world. Yeah. That was, that was my experience is like, you know, being, being around people that you weren't normally around growing up, you know, I got into poker and I realized, you know, not all these white guys are that. Andrew's there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just like, you know, it, it's like, man, it's it's so great that this game puts us in these environments that I think all of us can say that we've met people from all over the world. And uh, even in your, your same, your, the same city that you wouldn't have met otherwise that, yeah. Yeah, we, we always joke about uh, how do you put it, Andrew? Is like the, the reward and the fringe made along the way. Oh, yeah. That's actually true in poker. Yeah, I agree totally. And poker has just, to me, it's been the most amazing activity 
that I've been involved in, you know, non-professionally, like you grow so much as a person doing the things that help you get better in poker. You know, I mean, you know, you have to be able to really cultivate, you know, patience and discipline and emotional stability, like all of these things that have that helped to make poker non like non or less painful um, <laughs> poker. Like those are all just great things to have in life too. So, yeah, I mean, the people in poker, the things that you learn, it's just, there's so many benefits to, to playing, I think. Yeah, fully agree with that. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Congratulations again. Good luck in Amsterdam or uh, do you like good luck? Do you prefer something else? Good skill in Amsterdam? Moving your flips in Amsterdam. Um, Yeah, it'll it'll be fun. So, and uh, hopefully see you, uh, Andrew, back out uh, on the felt in Maryland. I I would enjoy that. Pretty safe now. All right, take care. You too. Ah, okay. I know you won't.